Welcome to the Life Together podcast. Life Together is a Wednesday gathering for worship, Bible study, and community at Discover Church in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. We hope that this week's message will encourage you and challenge you. Our mission here at Discover Church is to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. When I was 12, my elementary teacher told me that one day I would be a math teacher. When I was 14, my drama teacher told me that one day I would perform on Broadway. When I was 16, I was told that one day I would manage a sonic drive-in. When I was 19, a girl named Megan told me that one day I would be her spouse. When I was 23, I was told that Mandy Wooten would never lose her temper. When I was 26, I was told that all of my children would be boys. And when I was 27, a man named Barry told me that I would never leave Oklahoma. And they were all wrong. (laughs) Prophecy is difficult. So today is week four in our six-week series through the book of Judges. But before we walk into this week, I noticed that there was an element in all of our stories that we hadn't yet taken a moment to give some attention to. And I'd love to start off today by giving a little attention to the subject of prophecy. All six of our imperfect judges are judges, which is easy to remember because it's called the book of Judges. But it's easy to forget that all six of them are also prophets. There is this special gift that they have. God is speaking to them, and then they are speaking to Israel on behalf of God. If you have spent years in a spirit-filled church, prophecy might be something that is normal to you or natural to you, but I want to remind you and all of us tonight that prophecy is not normal. It is not natural. Prophecy is supernatural. It is wild and hard to pin down and not of this world. I want to address three quick questions about the subject of prophecy as we get started tonight. What is prophecy? Does it still happen today? And what is our role? So first, let's define it. Considering both what we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, prophecy is the miraculous act of receiving and communicating revelation from God, which is a pretty phenomenal thing. It's miraculous because it is information that we shouldn't be able to know. So in the Old Testament, Micah prophesies that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. That is information that he shouldn't have been able to know. In the New Testament, the Apostle John prophesies that one day Jesus will be in heaven surrounded by 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. That is an image, that is information that he shouldn't have been able to know, and yet God revealed it to him. And prophecy isn't just about hearing. Prophecy is about hearing and speaking. So question number two, does God still call on prophets today? This is where a lot of the Christian community will take a quick divide on a fork in the road because there are many who believe that prophecy does not happen still today while others do. Prophecy is clearly active in the New Testament. It's included in the nine gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So it was clearly present in the New Testament, but some Christians believe that after the church was established, that the gifts ended. So after Peter died and Paul died, the gifts ended. 
other people, like me and like our pastor, believe that the church is still being established. And so these gifts are the supernatural tools to expand the kingdom of God here on earth. And we see this in the New Testament as it tells us about the days when there will be completeness. That until there is completeness, there will be spiritual gifts. There will be gifts of healing and gifts of tongues and gifts of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10 says this, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. So it does say that one day there will not be these spiritual gifts. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when, here's the word, completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So our church teaches that completeness is when the church is reunited with Christ. So when Christ returns for his church, we won't need spiritual gifts because Christ will reveal himself He won't need your help. You don't need a painting of Jesus when Jesus is in the room. And until that day, which is where we're living now, there will be spiritual gifts and there will be prophecy. So question number three, what is your role? Every believer has three roles that they may take on when it comes to the topic of prophecy. And some of us may take on a little bit of all three. You will either be called to give prophecy to receive prophecy, or to reject prophecy. If the idea of speaking for God intimidates you, that is probably the correct reaction to have. It is a somber, weighty thing to carry. Most prophets aren't super excited about being prophets. If you have the gift of prophecy, it's probably best to wait until someone else calls you a prophet and not to just put it up on your Facebook account. Prophets usually have very difficult lives, and yet, in the difficult calling to be a prophet, God needs people to speak his word. He needs people to hear and then to speak the words that God would want to speak. If you're not called to give prophecy, it is probably more likely that you'll be called to receive prophecy. God may use someone else to speak to you. Now, now why? Like, why would God use someone else to speak to me. And there's a couple different options. So God may use someone to speak to you because he's not just speaking to you. God may want to speak to a group of people. He might want to speak to your Bible study you gather with. He might want to speak to our congregation on Sunday morning. He might want to speak to the church in America or the church globally. And when God wants to speak with those voices, he might use someone else to speak to you. God might speak to you to confirm something that he's already talking with you about. That you might have a question that you've been wrestling with God, and then God is going to send someone else to affirm that truth, to reconcile that truth in your heart, and bring you to a higher level of faith and a higher level of confidence. God may also use someone else to speak to you if you're not listening. There may be seasons in your life where you are not listening well, and God may use someone else to get your attention, and you may be called upon to receive prophecy. But just because someone says, this is from God, does not mean always that this is from God. So you may also be called to reject prophecy. There were false prophets all throughout the Bible, and the Bible prophesies that there will always be false prophets. This is part of our existence in a fallen world. So one of your roles as a believer is to hear prophecy and then to ask the very important question, is this from God? 
We test prophecy by his word because God cannot contradict himself. And we test it through wise counsel. You know, I have seen people twist prophecy into their own personal platform. I have seen people twist prophecy into fortune telling or mind reading. And this is not what that gift is. And so it is on the job list for every believer that when you hear prophecy and someone says, this is what God says, your first question should be, is that what God says? And we should seek out true prophecy to align our hearts with. So before we begin with judges, our judge number four tonight, I want to pause here and just reflect on the gift of prophecy and take a moment to pray about that gift in our hearts. Because there's two extremes that happen here when it comes to the topic of prophecy. And, and one of them is that we hang out about 100 feet behind the Spirit. So God wants to work in this world. He wants to expand his kingdom. And we're hanging about 100 feet back from the front line because we're sitting there going, this is weird. I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. He told me to say this. I'm not doing that. And we hang out 100 feet behind the Spirit. The other extreme is that we hang out 100 feet ahead. And everything is prophecy. And we're just walking through the world telling everyone everything that we think right off the top of our heads. And we just believe that every intuitive thought we possibly could ever have is absolutely undeniably from God. We don't want to hang out 100 feet in front of the Spirit. And we don't want to hang out 100 feet behind. We want to walk with the Spirit. And I want to take a moment just to pause here and to challenge you when it comes to the gifts of prophecy to walk with the Spirit. We are a church who needs to be hearing from God. Your family needs to be hearing from God. Your Bible study, your friend group, you as an individual need to be hearing from God. Can we just pray about this? Father, we're going to lean into your arms here and we pray that you would lead us. I, I know that there are people in this room who have the desire to be gifted with spiritual gifts, who are people of deep faith, who have surrendered their heart to you, who've been baptized in the Holy Spirit and long to see that kind of fruitfulness in their lives, that long to see those supernatural tools utilized to expand your kingdom. And I pray that if there's someone in this room that you would use as a prophet, I pray that you would stir up those gifts and you would speak faith and bravery into their lives. I pray that you would teach all of us how to walk um, with you in this topic, that if there's a word we need to receive, let us be willing to receive it. If there's a word we need to reject, let us be brave enough to reject it. But I pray that your will would be done in our individual lives, with our families, and in this church, God, and that we would see your kingdom continue to expand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go to Judges. So Judges chapter 6, verse 12 through 14. We're going to meet our judge number 4. Let's get to it. Verse 12 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? And where are the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. I love the story of Gideon. And one of the reasons I love Gideon is because Gideon is not afraid to argue with God. So God says, I'm with you. And Gideon says, Are you? And God says, No, no, I'm with you. And Gideon says, Are you? 
Are, are, are you really sure? And he keeps asking, are, are you really sure? And it's not about if God is sure. It's about if Gideon is sure. And Gideon is faced with this tough question, and he has to figure it out. Is he going to doubt or is he going to believe? If you've ever doubted God, if you've ever wondered if he was on your side, you're in good company tonight because you are not alone. Gideon struggles with doubt. The rest of chapter 6 is filled with doubt. It's these back-and-forth conversations between Gideon and God. God gives Gideon an instruction, and Gideon says, Are you sure? And then he says it again, and he says it again. Gideon keeps asking himself, Should I believe or should I doubt? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Should I believe or should I doubt? In verse 17, Gideon says, If you are truly going to help me, Show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. I believe that every honest Christian will admit that they have experienced this kind of doubt before in different seasons and for different reasons. Gideon is aware that his doubt is significant. He's aware that his doubt is a problem. He worries that God will not be patient with all of his doubt In verse 39, Gideon says, please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. (laughs) Have you ever done that? Please don't be angry with me, but I got one more thing to ask. I think Gideon reveals something in our human nature that commonly afflicts us today. There is an ongoing unbiblical belief in Christian circles that God is annoyed or angered by doubt that God can't handle your doubt, that God is offended or unable to deal with your doubt. God does not react to Gideon with anger. He responds with patience and steadfastness. God wants to help Gideon in his doubt, and God wants to help you in your doubt. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is walking down the streets, and he runs into this man, and this man has a son who is violently oppressed by demons. I'm a father, and I just can't imagine what that would feel like as a dad to see something so out of your control, to see a son who is violently oppressed by demons. And so he comes to Jesus for help. This man is desperate, and yet the man says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I want this. I want to believe. I want to believe that you heal. I want to see my son restored. I want to believe. But if I'm honest with you, I'm still battling some unbelief, and I'm going to need some help with it. I want to encourage you today with whatever doubt you're facing that Jesus wants to help you overcome your doubt. If you're doubting his power to heal, Jesus wants to help you overcome your doubt. If you are doubting his power to transform and reconcile and bring new life, God wants to help you overcome your doubt. You know, it's not a sin to doubt. It's also not a sin to be angry. But unresolved anger can lead to sin, and unresolved doubt can separate you from God. So bring your doubt to God. Bring your doubt to Jesus. This is what happens to Gideon. He does this. He keeps coming back and coming back and coming back until he's truly convinced. He keeps asking questions until he knows that he knows that he knows that God is good and that God is on his side. 
There's a, a young lady over in Crossroads tonight who's actually preaching tonight, and she's a friend of the church. Her name's Amanda Sosa, and she's a really cool person, and I've kind of been celebrating with her this week. And the reason I've been celebrating with her is because this Sunday is going to be her last Sunday here at Discover Church because the Sunday after, she's going to be starting full-time as a worship pastor in Des Moines, Iowa. And it's really cool, and so we're really excited for her. When we moved here nine, ten years ago, Amanda was 12 or 13, and it's really a phenomenal act of the Spirit because uh, at 12 or 13, she already knew. She already knew that she was called to be a worship leader. But a lot of time has passed. That's a long time. Can you think of the last goal that God gave you that would take 10 years to be completed? I mean, that's, that's a long-term goal. That's a long wait. And you can fully expect that on that path, there are going to be seasons of doubt that I think about Amanda and her middle school years and her high school years. Am I going to be enough? Is this right? Did I hear correctly? When she moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma to go to college, God, it seems like you're sending me on my own here. Is this right? Did I hear you correctly? Are you sure this is what you wanted? And that through those seasons of doubt, when we bring our doubt to Christ, God wants to help us with our doubt and lead us to a place of confidence. Gideon gets led to a place of confidence, and the victory that comes next is amazing. At the beginning of chapter 7, Gideon has now assembled a mighty army. Not only Gideon is completely convinced, he's been able to completely convince a giant army. The Bible says 32,000 men gathered to fight with Gideon. Do you remember the children's book, uh, The Little Engine That Could? Yeah, so in chapter 6, Gideon is like, I think I can. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And by chapter 7, Gideon's like, look at me now. Like, here we go. Let's do this. Come on, boys. And so he is like stomping laps around, getting ready to go into battle. And he's got all of his men with him, and everything is feeling really good, feeling really confident. And God identifies an issue even before the battle has begun. So in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. God identifies pride and the battle hasn't even begun. He sees their hearts and he knows if I let 32,000 men win this battle, 32,000 men are going to go home to their wives and go, look what I did. I did it. Aren't I so strong? Aren't I amazing? Check out how cool I am. I want to remind you today that God will not partner with your pride. God has his heavenly objectives, and, he, and when he accomplishes his mighty works, he will not share his praise. Psalm 83 is a powerful psalm. I want to share one verse with you right now, but I promise I'm going to come back to it later and put this verse into context. Psalm 83, 18 says, Then they will learn that you alone are called the Lord, and that you alone are the Most High, supreme over all the earth. It's just God. It's just Him. There is no one else. There is no one else who can compare. There is no one who can stand next to Him. On the grand billboard, there is only room for one name, and it is His name. It's just Him. When you walk across the street to pray for your neighbor, and God does something amazing, the end result will not be people saying, wow, God and Dennis are just really great. Whenever you intercede for a lost family member and God reconciles them, they're not going to be like, isn't Margaret and God so righteous? 
Isn't Jenny and God just so sweet? Isn't Johnny and God just the kindest people you've ever met? There's not room for another name. It's just God. God identifies the pride, and he starts to size down Gideon's forces. God tells Gideon to send home anyone who trembles with fear, and 22,000 go home. God tells Gideon to take the remaining 10,000 and size them down again. He invites them to drink at the river, and only 300 of them cup the water to their mouths, and he says, those are the ones. And so he sizes them down once more, down to 300. Can you imagine being in a group of 32,000 people and suddenly be down, being down to 300? That is a sizable decrease. So like, there's probably about 200 of us in the room tonight. And so if the 200 of us decided we were going to build an apartment complex, right? And then like these two people right here were like, never mind, we got it by ourselves. Like, we got it, we're under control. And the rest of us are thinking, I'm pretty sure you needed us. It is a huge cut down, and this is where God finds the solution. The victory that God accomplishes on this day is incredible. It's not based on human strength. It's not a trick. It could not be re recreated on any day. God instructs Gideon to surround the Midianite camp with 300 men. They are carrying with them very unconventional weapons of war. They have a trumpet in one hand. And then they have a clay jar in the other, and inside the clay jar, they have a torch that has been lit. These are their unconventional weapons of God's glory. This battle is like Jericho all over again. One action of obedience and faith opens the door to victory. If you've ever felt like God's instructions don't completely make sense, that's probably a good sign. You are going to see people to your left and to your right that are running into battle with pistols and hand grenades, and you're going to be standing there with a trumpet and with clay jars wondering, am I sure this is right? But one action of obedience and faith opens the door to victory. If you ever get that feeling as a Christian that you're thinking, man, why is it that every time God asks me to do something, it feels a little bit like stepping off a cliff? That's called faith. It's supposed to feel that way because if it was solid ground, it wouldn't be faith. And if you walked out into the field with 32,000 warriors, you'd all say, look what we did. But if you walk out into the field with a trumpet and a clay jar, when victory comes, you're all going to be completely convinced whose victory it is. The victory that day is epic. The Midianite forces are demolished. The military leaders, Oreb and Zeb, are killed. The Midianite kings, uh, Zebeth and Zalmunna, are killed. It's incredible. It leads Israel into 40 years of peace, but there's just one problem with this victory, and the problem is foreshadowed way back before the jars are broken and before the trumpets are played. I want you to listen to Gideon's battle instructions in verse 7 and 18. They're ready to go. And this is what Gideon tells them. Watch me, Gideon told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for who? You know, whenever we teach this story to children, we, we celebrate this. We're like, yay, Gideon, he did it. Yay for Gideon. Whenever you read this as adults, you can begin to identify this as foreshadowing. Even, even after God has sized down his army so significant, Gideon still seems to be confused about who is going to get the praise. 
Gideon forgets that on the billboard, there's only room for one name. After all of the fighting is over, after all of the victory is won, this problem shows back up at the end of chapter 8. Verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. Gideon almost gets it right. He understands he's not supposed to be king, but yet he still feels like he deserves something. You could call the culture that we live in mostly a meritocracy. It's the idea that we live in a culture that really praises people who earn stuff, right? So we like to have uh, American Idol so we can pick out who the best singer is and give the deal to the best singer. And we have, you know, NFL drafts so we can pick out the best player and make sure the best player gets the job, the person who got the best grades in school. And that we have created this culture around us that says that I earned this, a lot of you work for companies that may have some kind of like pension plan, retirement plan, or even like some priority. If you've worked there for five years, you get this. Or if you work here for 20 years, you get this. And we are trained by the culture that we live in to have this feeling of, I, I earned this. And it is so easy for the culture of our world to slowly drift itself into the church. And I want to remind you that the kingdom of heaven is not a meritocracy. You do not earn this. Whether you got saved 30 minutes ago or you got saved 30 years ago, in the kingdom of heaven, it's all the same. Jesus has a parable he tells that says exactly this. He says, the worker in the field, they came at the beginning of the day, and they got paid one denarius. They came at noon, they came at three, they came at six, and they all get paid exactly the same. Because they all earned the same? No, because none of them earned anything. And when you walk into the kingdom of heaven, none of us earned anything. It's all free. It's all a gift. It's all unmerited favor. And yet it can be so tempting when victory comes that we can sit back like Gideon and go, man, God was really amazing, but I was kind of good too, right? Like, I was, like you could put my name with like a, like a smaller font under God's name. Like, like God co-starring Gideon. Pride is a trap. Uh, Gideon almost gets it right and what happens to his family is just so tragic. The Bible actually describes this action of Gideon's as a snare. He takes this gold, he turns the gold into a priest ephod. So it's like this fancy garment they would wear with ornaments and pendants. And he made this ornament. And the Bible says that Israel then began to prostitute itself for this ephod. They begin to worship this thing, which is heartbreaking I had a friend last week who had a triple bypass heart surgery. She's doing really, really well, and I'm so thankful for that. She had an amazing surgeon come in on a day that was one of the worst days of her life and help by the giftings that God had given that surgeon to do amazing work. How crazy would it be if when she left the hospital, she was like, hey, surgeon, could I get that scalpel that you used on the surgery? Great. And then she goes home and, like, builds an altar to the scalpel. I'm like, oh, great scalpel. Thank you for saving my life. And yet we worship the tools of victory rather than worshiping the one who is victorious. 
And this act of pride in Gideon's life turns into a snare, and it traps him, and it traps his family. His son ends up killing his brothers so that he can become the king years down the road. His son is in a battle, and in this battle, a woman drops a brick onto Gideon's son's head, and his son says to his armor bearer, I want you to run me through with a sword right now so no one can say that I was killed by a woman. And he's sitting there going, kill me now. I would rather die with my pride than be healed and be humble. Isn't that heartbreaking? It's heartbreaking, but I got to be honest, friends. I don't distance myself from this. I have seen these attitudes in my own heart. Man, I've heard the phrase before that, uh, that my wife would rather see me die on this white horse than fall off. That I would rather die with my pride than be healed with humility. And God wants to call each one of us into a right place in his victory and recognize that there's just one him and there's room for just one name. I want to reread our mission statement for this series. Behind every rebellion is the opportunity for reconciliation. Behind every failure is the opportunity for forgiveness. And behind every imperfect hero is a perfect God. I promised I would reread Psalm 83. What's interesting about Psalm 83 is that it is set right around the time period of what happens in Judges. And so there are several names in Psalm 83 that are callbacks to events that happen in the book of Judges. I'm going to give you a few little names for you. So Sisera was the main enemy, the leader of the enemy's army we talked about last week. Oreb and Zeb were the Midianite military leaders from this week. Uh, Zeba and Zalmunna were the kings of Midian from this week. And I want you to recognize those names as we read this Psalm 83 in context. This is verse 9 to 18. Do to them as you did to the Midianites, and as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the Kishon River. They were destroyed at Endor, and their decaying corpses fertilized the soil. Let their mighty nobles die as Oreb and Zeb did. Let all their princes die like Zeba and Zelmuna. For they said, let us seize for our own use these pasture lands of God. Oh my God, scatter them like tumbleweed, like chaff before the wind, as a fire burns a forest and as a flame sets mountains ablaze. Chase them with your fierce storm. Terrify them with your tempest. Utterly disgrace them until they submit to your name, O oh Lord. Let them be ashamed and terrified forever. Let them die in disgrace. Then they will learn that you alone are called the Lord, that you alone are the Most High, supreme over all the earth. This is a powerful psalm recognizing the authority of God. But let me tell you what this psalm tells us about our human nature is it is very, very, very easy to shoot this psalm out at a sinful culture. It is very easy to look at the sin in our world and say, they should recognize that it's just God, that it's him alone and just him. It is far more challenging to sing this psalm to ourselves and to remind ourselves that when God calls you into battle, it's just going to be him. And any gift you're carrying in your arms, any victory that you are carrying in your arms is unmerited. And what is our response? Our response should be, Humble thankfulness. Humble thankfulness should come on us like a rainstorm. 
and just come pouring down over our hearts and wash away our pride and wash away our fear and wash away our insecurities and remind us that God is in control, that he is here, he sees it all, and as we lean into his authority, victory will be ours. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. I thank you that you're here with us tonight. I want to pray for the battles that are being fought in this room. There are battles being fought today in our relationships and in our workplaces and in our health. And I pray, Lord, that you would be victorious. I pray that we would be a people who learn to hear your word and then are brave enough to do anything that you say. Holy Spirit, speak to us. I pray that even now that there could be a word of encouragement into our hearts. And if not now, find us in the quiet places, God. Find us as we lay our heads on our pillows tonight and line us up with you. Let us be walking in your spirit. Let us hear the things you want us to hear. Let us speak the things you want us to speak. I thank you for your sweet spirit in this room tonight. I thank you for your presence and your kindness and your grace. You've been so good to us, and we praise you tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we see you in person. Join us Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m. or Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. right here at Discover Church. Find us online at discoverchurch.org.